it always surprises me to see how much other religions seem to be willing to embrace parts of what Jesus says, and even Jesus himself. They seem to be willing to have a place for Jesus within their religions. Some of the major religions of our world have some place for Jesus in their teachings. Take uh, Islam, for example. Uh, They believe in the miraculous birth of Jesus. They believe that he performed miracles and that he healed people. They believe that Jesus will come again before the world ends. They believe that Jesus was a prophet who was sent from God. In fact, they're even willing to accept the idea that he is the son of God. Uh, You may have even seen these billboards. There's a few of them around Sydney. It's a a worldwide campaign that, uh, that, uh, that Islam is promoting to say that Jesus is one of us, that he, he belongs to our faith as well as to the Christian faith. Uh, Jesus holds a place in Hinduism as well. Uh, They believe that Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, that he travelled to Tibet and Kashmir and possibly even to India. There are branches of Buddhism that claim that they are based on the teachings of Jesus from that time when he went to Kashmir and to Tibet. But despite all of the areas where they may be willing to agree, despite all of the things that they may be willing to accept about Jesus, there's one sticking point. There's one thing that no other religion is willing to accept. They can't accept the idea that Jesus is God. Well, Hindus can accept that he's one of many gods, but not the God, not the creator of all things. They're very happy to say that Jesus is important, but they're not willing to come to the point of saying that he is God. Now, we're looking today at this passage from John's Gospel where Jesus makes probably his boldest claim to be God. And we see the implications of the claim that Jesus wants to make here. Now, the section that we're looking at, as I said, starts at the end of chapter 4 with a miracle and then a second miracle that's performed at the beginning of chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible there, follow along with me as we look through this. Chapter 4 and find verse number 43. We hear a story of Jesus healing a child, but it's a very unusual story. We don't know the age of the child, but we know that the father has travelled some distance to see Jesus because he believes that his son is about to die. The father knows that he is powerless to do anything, but he comes to Jesus because he knows that Jesus can do something. But it's a really unusual miracle. The whole thing happens without any fanfare, It's almost a remote healing that Jesus does. Jesus never meets the child, never sees the child, never touches the child. It all happens from some distance away. Look at how it happens. Verse number 49. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. That's it. Like, that's the miracle right there. Just two sentences, one from the royal official and, and, and two sentences from Jesus. You may go, your son will live. It's amazing the way that our cynical minds work. Just, you know, I, well, maybe it's my cynical mind, maybe yours isn't like that. But, but I'm sure that if I was standing there, I would have said, well, how do we know something's happened? 
How do we know that the child's been healed? I mean, I'd like a little bit of a verification. I mean, could we phone somebody? Would there be some possibility of checking whether or not this has actually taken place? What proof is there that the child has been healed? They didn't see anything happen. The man didn't have to do anything. All he did was say to Jesus, please come before my son dies. Jesus says, go home. He'll live. But then we get this included detail. I think it's to silence the cynics. While the man's heading home, one of his servants comes from his home with a message that his son is improving, that his condition is better. Verse 52. When he inquired as to the time when the son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. And the father realised that was the exact time at which Jesus said, your son will live. But what this man does is what everybody ought to do. It's right there in verse 50, the second half of that verse. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. The man took Jesus at his word. He believed it. When Jesus said, your son will live, he could have been a cynic and said, yeah, but how do I know? How can I be certain? I mean, the very fact that he has come to Jesus means that he knows that Jesus is capable of doing something. And he takes Jesus at his word. He trusted Jesus. He believed Jesus. Well, if the first miracle is a heartwarming story about a child's life being saved, the second miracle is a frustrating story about a bunch of legalistic nitpickers who sound very much like Presbyterians to me. (laughs) It all starts quite well. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem again, we're told, and he's gone to a pool in Jerusalem that was near the temple that was called the Sheep Gate. And we're told that there is a man there who's been an invalid for 38 years. Now, we don't know too much about this pool other than what we read here. There are some little pieces of information around out there in the historical world. But apparently the pool was where a lot of disabled people would gather. Uh, The legend had it that an angel would come down and stir the water in the pool. And if you were the first person to get into the pool after the angel had stirred the water, then you would be healed. Seems a little bit hit and miss, doesn't it? I mean, first of all, you've got to be the, you've got to be there when the waters get stirred. And then secondly, you've got to be the first one who gets into the water once the waters have been stirred. And even then, there's no guarantee that you'll be healed. It all sounds very superstitious, doesn't it? In fact, it sounds like some of the superstitions that exist today with places like Lourdes or, or Fatima, that, that if you do the right things at the right time and you're in the right place, then maybe there will be a healing that will come your way. So there's a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. And look at what it says, chapter 5, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, I would have thought it was pretty glaringly obvious that the man wanted to get well. That's why he's there at the pool. So the man points out that obvious thing to Jesus, that he actually has this impediment. He can't get himself 
down into the pool when the waters are stirred. Verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else always goes down ahead of me. Now again, I want you to notice how this miracle happens. It happens instantly. It happens without any fuss. We're not waiting for angels to stir water. We're not needing anyone to drop us into the pool. Jesus speaks and the man is healed. So he thinks the impediment to being healed is that he's got no one to help him get into the water. But Jesus can make it happen. All Jesus needs to do is speak and it will happen. Verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. I mean, it must have been an extraordinary thing for those people who'd seen this man. Presumably he'd spent plenty of his 38 years waiting down by this pool to be healed. And now they see him pick up his mat and walk out the door. The waters haven't been stirred by an angel. He hasn't been dropped into the waters. Jesus has spoken and the man has been healed. But I think John's purpose in recording this event for us is not simply to show that Jesus has this extraordinary power and authority. No, 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 no. It's for what follows. In what could only be described as a masterstroke of pettiness and legalism, the Jewish religious leaders arrive on the scene. How do they respond? A crippled man who is now able to walk. He hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. How are we going to respond? Are we at least going to be pleased that he's now able to walk? No, we're not. We're going to criticise him because he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath, which constitutes work and therefore a breach of the Sabbath. Now, you could go home and do this if you wanted. It would take you a long time, but I can tell you what the answer is. There is no law against carrying your mat on the Sabbath. You could read in the entire Old Testament, there is no law that says you may not carry a mat on the Sabbath. This was a rule that the religious leaders had made up themselves. Had nothing to do with God's law. But even putting that aside... It's just their lack of compassion that's so breathtaking, isn't it? That here he is, healed, able to walk, been a cripple for 38 years, and they don't care about that. All they care about is the fact that he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. They're far more concerned about him working on the Sabbath than they are about him walking on the Sabbath. It's a sad bunch of nitpickers, isn't it? But take care. It's very easy for us to become just like them. Well, when they confront Jesus, because they now want to accuse him of being involved in a Sabbath breach as well, they get a little bit more than they had expected. And the first point that Jesus wants to address is this issue about the Sabbath. And look at what he says, chapter 5, verse 17. It kind of sounds like a, sounds like he might be dodging the issue, but he's actually confronting the issue head on. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work. See, the Jewish religious leaders knew that God worked every day, that there was no Sabbath for God. 
God's the one who sustains the world that we live in. If God didn't work on the Sabbath, the world would stop on the Sabbath, wouldn't it? So God is at work on every day. And then look at what Jesus says. And I too am working. That may be a little subtle, but Jesus is saying, my father, God and I, well, we don't need to abide by Sabbath laws. I'm God. I work every day. The Jewish leaders were well aware of what he was saying. Jesus is saying, my father and I will continue to work on the Sabbath. I mean, look at what it says in verse number 18. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understand exactly what he's saying, don't they? They now want him dead because he is claiming to be God. From verse 19 onwards till the end of the chapter is one speech from Jesus. It's a detailed answer. He's trying to establish the fact that he is God and that he has the right to do the things that he's been doing. But there's two main points that I want to draw your attention to in here. First of all, Jesus wants to say that he is the life giver. He is the one who has the ability not only to be able to heal, but to give life, eternal life to people. Find chapter 5 and look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whomever he is pleased to give it. Jesus says, I have the authority and the power to be able to give life. And if if that's not all explicit enough, look at what verse 24 says. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who can give life. And that's exactly what he's just illustrated in this first miracle, isn't it? The son is dying and Jesus has given him life. The man took Jesus at his word and now Jesus is saying that's what everybody needs to do. This man took Jesus at his word and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. But the other thing that Jesus establishes in this passage is that he is the judge of this world. See, I think that's one of the most stunning things about this passage is that you've got these religious leaders not holding Jesus up to the scrutiny of God's law, but holding Jesus up to the scrutiny of their own petty little rules. This rule about not carrying your mat on the Sabbath or even healing on the Sabbath. They're wanting to hold Jesus up to their petty laws, their petty rules. 
They try to dismiss Jesus as a lawbreaker because he's not doing what they say he should do. I mean, it is quite stunning, isn't it? Here is the one who is God, the one who was there before the creation of the world, and they want to try to judge him. Not by the law, but by rules that they've made up. It just seems like a joke, doesn't it? But look at what Jesus says, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Jesus turns the tables on them, says, no, 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 you won't be judging me, I will be judging you. And then look at what he says in verse 37. And the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Now, this is an extraordinary stinging rebuke from Jesus here. He's telling the religious leaders of Israel, people who had a proud tradition of being the keepers of God's word, the people that he's speaking to would have memorised massive amounts of the Old Testament, probably would have had the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, completely memorised. They would have known exactly what it says. And Jesus says, the problem with you guys is that you've never even heard God's voice. Nor does his word dwell in you. And then he follows it up with a devastating critique in verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. It's an extraordinary thing that Jesus says, isn't it? Jesus doesn't just invite them to believe. He stands in front of them, claims to be God, and then dares them to believe in him. Taking Jesus at his word. That's what sums up this whole section. And can I say, I think the implications for this are just as real for us today as they were for those religious leaders back in Jesus' day. We need to be people who take Jesus at his word. Let me show you two important things. Go back to chapter 5, verse number 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. How are we saved? How are we made right with God? How do we receive eternal life? By taking Jesus at his word. By believing him. By trusting him. It sounds too easy though, doesn't it? And we struggle with it because it sounds a little bit too easy. We'd like to be able to do something ourselves. Like, surely isn't there something that I can add to that? Now, when you're invited over to someone's place for dinner and they say, don't bring anything, 
You think, oh, I've got to take something. We feel the same way about this salvation. That Jesus says, all you've got to do is believe. Trust me and you have eternal life. But Jesus says salvation comes completely because of what he has done for us and simply because we've stopped trusting ourselves and we've started trusting him. Now you may think that I say that quite regularly when I'm preaching, but I think it's because that's the message that keeps coming through in the Bible. We keep thinking that we have to earn God's favour somehow, that surely there's got to be a few things that we do that will count in our favour in the end, that our salvation will hinge on a little bit of work from Jesus, a little bit of work from us. That's not what Jesus says. What he says is, if you hear my words and believe him who sent me, then you have eternal life. Your contribution to that was to stop trusting yourself and just trust Jesus. But can I say... We need to make sure that we keep taking Jesus at his word. We need to make sure that we're still listening to his word today. So how do you do that? How do you hear his voice? Well, you need to make sure that you take the Bible seriously. You need to be serious about reading it, serious about understanding it, serious about shaping your life around what God's word says. I still think the stunning thing in this passage is that these religious leaders back in Jesus' day, they would have known their, their, the Bible incredibly well. They would have known it inside and out, yet it didn't shape their thinking. It didn't change them. They knew that God was gracious and compassionate but they'd become a bunch of legalistic nitpickers who didn't even care if a crippled man could now walk. They knew that God was sending his saviour, but even when the saviour is standing right in front of them, they can't recognise him. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not for a moment suggesting that I'm any better than them. In fact, had I been there with them, I would have been on their side, I'm sure. What I'm saying is that we need to be careful that we don't make the same mistake as them. We can hear Jesus speak to us today. All you've got to do is open up your Bible. I mean, Jesus says the whole of scriptures are testifying about him. So just open up your Bible and you can hear Jesus speak to us. So let me ask, how often do you open up your Bible? Are you part of a Bible study here at this church or or part of a Bible study group elsewhere? We need to be people who take Jesus at his word and let his word shape our attitudes and our values and our priorities. See, our attitudes and values will get shaped by a whole lot of voices in our world today. There's voices everywhere that are talking to you, telling you what attitudes you should have about political issues and social issues. There are voices like these ones that people tend to listen to quite regularly. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying don't listen to them. Actually, don't listen to Alan Jones, please, whatever you do. But, But they're voices that want to try and shape your thinking. 
on how we should deal with refugees or what should happen when it comes to gay marriage. Well, maybe these are the voices that you hear. Maybe your attitudes are shaped by what you read in those newspapers. We need to be people who hear Jesus' voice and allow that to shape our attitudes, shape our lives, shape our thinking, shape our priorities. We need to be people who take Jesus at his word, believe him and keep listening to what he says.